Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Jessica McCarty. Jessica specializes in all things satellites, wildfire, and agriculture, and works with organizations such as NASA and the Arctic Council on a range of fascinating problems around the relationship between humans and the world around us. Join us as we speak about fire, climate, and people, and what Jessica describes as home economics on a global scale. Good evening, Jessica. Thank you so much for speaking with me today on Steam Powered. I'm really looking forward to this second attempt at having this conversation. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's wonderful to join you again, uh, out sitting outside again, um, as I try to let my little one sleep. And I also <laughs> speak as loudly as I need to <laughs> to do this interview. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, mine is currently unwell, so she is sleeping in our bed and hopefully staying asleep and sleeping off her cold so (laughs) we'll see how that goes oh we just we just got through that so I understand yeah absolutely yeah cool all right so starting from the beginning how did you get into geography and public policy oh Oh, wow that's a big question um I I think the, the short answer to that is is simply that I was willing to say yes uh to some very odd requests. So the the thing I did for my PhD was that, um, so I'm a specialist in satellite data and I work a lot um, with NASA. I have been funded by NASA since my uh, master's degree. And, um, and in January, we'll actually start as a civil servant with NASA at NASA Ames Research Center in California. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty exciting. I'm going to give up my tenured professor position, which is a, bi- a bittersweet, but I'm looking forward to contributing um, to national and yep. international science policy. So, um, so what I was doing was using satellite data to try to map all human-caused fire in the lower 48 states of the U.S., which is a big area, right? It's larger, it's larger <laughs> than all of Australia. So, um, yeah, not you a know, small task. <laughs> so, so a small task. Um, and I was doing lots of field work across the U- across the U.S. Um, I was so young at the time, my older brother had to come with me on field work just so somebody was old enough to rent the car because U.S. laws are <laughs> that you have to be 25 to rent a car, um, which was fine because we, um, my family owns a farm and, and he had just started his own farm. So it was good to have him with me, I would say. Um, yeah. But um the result of that work was that I calculated the impact of human-caused burning in, in uh, agricultural landscapes, the impact on air quality and then carbon emissions. And several nonprofits who were working um, in Europe and Eurasia came to me and said, would you help our colleagues in Eastern Europe and Russia learn how to do this process? And me, being an early career person, I was just like, sure. Because someone read my paper, right? Like it was a big deal. <laughs> Wait, you you read yeah. my paper? So um, so I said yes, and then um, I started working remotely with people, um, both in um, um, so at the time uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, um, and Russia, and then um, and then also um, from that work, I started working with a kind of a famous group in uh, Vienna, the IASA, 
which is a mm-hmm. kind of this Cold War era um, Institute of Science and Technology um, in Vienna, which has all the OECD countries represented there. So that's cool. Yeah, it is a really cool. And, and they're, everyone who works at IASA outside of uh, Vienna, they're also quite brilliant. So they're a great, they're a great team to work with. Um, so meetings started to be planned, and they were asking me if I would be willing to travel. And I can't can't stress how much being willing to say yes to international conferences, particularly ones where you're not necessarily going to present research, but you're going to be there working and listening to diplomats, <laughs> listening to government officials, are very helpful to understanding how science can interact with policy. These are hard yeah. meetings to put on your resume and CV for sure, because uh, they're not, <laughs> you know, learned societies or professional organizations. But, um, yes. but you're actually talking to the people, and you're in rooms with people who are making high-level decisions, and you are still presenting science. And so, it was really just because some someone asked me, and I said yes, and I was willing to do the work, that I started getting into it. Um, and I would say that the people who know me. IRL, uh, do not find me very diplomatic. Uh, I'm uh, my <laughs> friends and my family. I would say probably don't find me very diplomatic. Um, but um, I'm actually pretty good at it on an international stage because I rec, um, I recognize my position in the room. I guess like human geographers would call this positionality, but I recognize like I am mm-hmm. there representing a certain country, and that country represents these certain policy wishes and standards okay i'm also an independent scientist so here are the things i'm also representing on my own and just kind of being able to understand that everybody is wearing multiple hats in the room and then as much as possible being polite and collegial about it even when you're disagreeing so just trying to be as polite about it as you can sometimes it doesn't work i mean you know i was in this meeting once where this this older Siberian man, I thought he was going to strangle my French colleague. Like, I really did. I, I mean, <laughs> the, these two guys were just... Um, and it was all because my French colleague was um, smiling and shaking his head yes when the older Russian um, scientist um, was disagreeing with him. And this is a... Um, they had crossed cultural wires where it looked... Yeah. yeah, it looked very, like, dismissive and, like... And like this younger man was not giving his, his elder due respect. And so I had to just kind of like yeah. step in and be like, no, it's okay. It's okay. This is, this is what some, some French people do. He's not, he's not making fun of you, you know. Yeah. Um, and I do think sometimes women play that role of peacemaker, um, maybe naturally. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, though, I, again, in, in real life, people would, I think, find that they have to play peacemaker with me as opposed to me playing it. Um, <laughs> but uh, in a professional setting, I'm able to do this. And and so that's really how I got into science and policy. Now, I do work on two things, uh, fire and agriculture, um, where yeah. I'm, I'm just surrounded by dudes all the time. And so um, yeah. it's also quite helpful maybe being comfortable um still occasionally i'll be the only woman in the room um Mm. i have sometimes been representative of like un projects or even nasa projects and i'm the person in charge and i'm the only woman who has any power in the room and um it's just a 
Yeah, I feel like Johnny Cash. I feel like, like I, I walk the line. You know, like I have to very, <laughs> very carefully walk the line. Um, yeah. Because I I hold the power, but I also don't hold the power. And and, yeah. I, and I have to understand, you know, cultural cues and things. I will not pour anybody's tea. I will not pour their coffee. You know, will I walk over and hold the door for them? Absolutely. You know, if they are yeah. polite to me in a way that is gentlemanly in their culture will i say thank you and be appreciative yes i will yeah you know um because that's that's just um those are kind of like yeah those are soft skills (laughs) yeah no you're right yeah it's just being human um um, because i don't think they're doing it to be rude to me if i thought they were being rude i I could be able i would tell you know but in general yeah yeah. and i think it's about etiquette it's about (laughs) etiquette yeah I think maybe being from the a southern state in the U.S. was a good was good training. I mean, even when I'm saying things that people <laughs> don't like, I'm saying it in what sounds like is a polite way. Um, and you guys have that down to an art form. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Um, and and I have I have okay manners. I wouldn't say I have great manners. I mean, I'm not I'm not a debutante or anything. I did. Um, I am from the Appalachian Mountains. I'm not from. Like, uh, I'm not from a place where people have like cotillions or anything like that, but the, um, but, uh, so I don't, I don't maybe have the nicest table manners. That is an interesting thing. <laughs> I was Cause I grew up in the country where people don't, they, you know, you don't need them. I would say, but the, um, but you can pick that stuff up, right. You can learn, you can learn that. Like I had yeah. never, I didn't know how to use chopsticks until I was like 18 and I flew to mm. China for a summer and I, I learned very quickly how to use chopsticks. Like within three days, I was good because um, I needed That's to amazing. use them. Right? Once you need to, yeah. you learn them. Yeah. <laughs> and and that was the custom, and I struggled, and then I picked it up, and it was it was uh, it was good. You know, it's fine. So yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. Long story short, is I said yes, and then from there, because I'd been in spaces with policymakers, I was occasionally asked to come back um i have a policy about this if i'm not the right person i will tell people you oh that's Mm. very kind actually you should ask this person um or if you know i have a conflicting personal or professional reason i'll um be upfront with people and say oh i can't make it you need to ask this person this is the person i would recommend Mm. um and i think I don't know if that's like a form of humbleness as much as just collegiality that has yeah. has kept the invites coming. So when I can yes. say yes, I say yes from the right person if it's the right time, and if I can't, I get them. I get them to the right people or who I think the right people. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and that's been helpful. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, and it's actually, it's a it's a really good skill to learn to be able to recognize these sorts of opportunities because. You know, if you're in early career, you know, you want to say yes to everything, but at the same time, you still need to be able to learn to curate the things that you say yes to, because as you said, you know, sometimes you just not the right person for it. And even if you really want to try the opportunity, if it's not your space, you kind of just have to go, yeah, it's not my space, but here's someone who is. And it does come around and, you know, slightly unrelated to it. But um, even in my own work, you know, sometimes I get clients who come through and say, you know, I want to get this done, but. I'm not the person for this. You know, this is cool. I like what you like what you're suggesting, but it's not my space. But this person could totally 
look into it for you instead. And it, it comes around, it comes around, and all of those kind of circles and networking things kind of work out for you in the end because they know that you're happy to help, but you also know when to say no. That's right. Yeah, it's a form, I think, of paying it forward. Just like you would pay yeah. for, you know, the next person's coffee and yeah. eventually it'll come back to you. Same way. And, and exactly. Yeah. Just just pay it forward for other people and it will come back to you. Yeah. Um so my 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 media family is actually um pretty political. And what I mean and and I mean by that in American terms, like we talk politics, we all vote, we're all registered to vote. Um yeah. we all vote the same way. <laughs> kind of um and and so from a very early age i was paying attention to political races uh from a local to national mm-hmm. scale and um and why i mentioned that it's really helpful to understand who your civil servants are you know people who are government workers yeah. who are there as professional um uh, ministers who are there as professional analysts working for the government across different governments and administrations are not politicians and they are not the same as political appointees. And Mm. it's very helpful, even though I know people sometimes escape to science because they don't want to be in politics. um, It's very helpful to be able to distinguish those two um, and and to know Mm. who you're talking to. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're the policymakers and often the science that you're working on is actually very tightly bound to policy and economics and the way that your environment is governed. Exactly. And, I mean, you yourself, you're in fire, you're in agriculture, and these things are very, very tied to economics and infrastructure and all the things that make our society run. Yeah, and unfortunately, cultural identity, right, which leads to political power. Absolutely. Yeah, and so... um, and any given day, I could be talking to a room full of people who we may not agree on anything, right? <laughs> but we're trying to work for the same solutions, for the same problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, uh, and that's helpful as a scientist to understand that. Um, yeah. And the same way that I am upfront with, um, with policymakers, I will also be upfront with politicians. You know, and mm. and occasionally they'll laugh, they'll chuckle when I do this because I have had to talk to like U.S. representatives and you know Senate offices and stuff. And um, it's probably they probably think it's funny because they think I'm gonna be kind of like a stick in the mud egghead from the ivory tower or something. Um, but it's also my way of like uh, drawing a line in the sand. Like I know I know who you are, mm. I know how you vote, I know what's up. And you've come to me today, so I'm going to tell you what is real, what is factual, what is data mm. and science-based. And if you don't like it, I don't give a damn because that is the time yeah. that you gave me. You know, pardon my language, but and that uh, I think even when they don't agree with me or they have different agendas, there is an appreciation that uh, that I'm not there to help them spin anything. I'm not there to help them win anything. <laughs> They came to me for information and I'll give you the information. And that is it. Absolutely. And what you're saying is in a professional capacity because you are the domain expert and, you know, what you understand of the domain is Mm -hmm. going to help build this policy. So it's not 
you know, some of it is going to be about trying to please people, but at the yeah. same time, the science is the science. science yeah. And the results are the results. A yeah. Lot, yeah, it's the results. And it's not always going to be about sugarcoating it because, you know, you can't dispute what you found in terms of research because it's been done scientifically, hopefully. And it's not about, as you say, being a stick in the mud because you have data, you have the research, you also have options for solutions and the way to move forward. And that's what you're there for. That's right. <laughs> yes. If you were talking to me to check a box, like I do not speak to hear the sound of my own voice. We can end this now. Right. But, but if you want to hear <laughs> the data, the results, the science, I'm here to tell you that. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, Absolutely. you know, and sometimes people don't <laughs> like it. Um, yeah. Sometimes people don't like it. And, um, but that, but that's also the reality of, um, because I work at these intersections of climate and climate solutions, like absolutely as we move forward. With- and there are hard, there's hard things to hear sometimes <laughs> in <Yes>. these areas. <laughs> it is the nature of the thing. Yes. This will make you uncomfortable. I say that a lot to people. This is going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> so, but here's what you need to hear. Um, yeah. Um, I've had some really interesting conversations recently with people in the private sector as they start to think about how are they going to build resilience um, into their business models so that climate change just doesn't like drink their milkshakes. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and so it's been very interesting to observe those conversations to occasionally offer up data or insight, but not to give them opinions because I'm, I'm just kind of there to observe and to, you know, point them to the right data um, or studies. Um, but it's interesting to hear private sector, you know, from startup all the way up to multinational corporations starting to think the same way as policymakers. Okay. Yeah. How are we going to do the right governance? in our structures how are we going to think about social implications how are we going to have the right environmental considerations so that we don't go bust you know so that we have a business case in 10 years and i think that um um i know that's not new but i but i i i would encourage um i would encourage scientists right across across steam right to be open to this um you you don't have to necessarily work for private sector to even just be there as someone who can help. Though, of course, private sector yeah. positions are, that is a great STEAM career to have, you know. Um, yeah. We haven't talked about this, but I don't like this idea that there's only like one pathway for scientists and technology. Exactly. And, yeah. I don't like this idea. <laughs> this is a bad, this is a bad idea. Um, partly because universities globally kind of failed the COVID test. So they didn't, they didn't really <laughs> stick up for their faculty, staff, and students. So it's kind of kind of hard to convince people, I think, unless they feel very driven, committed um, to, to scholarly yeah. work and teaching to keep going. But um, but I do think that um, that this is another example where working with private sector and the nonprofit and the nonprofit space, you can help guide policy too. You're just doing it from a different way. These people also have influence. Well, if enough business owners end up being interested in these sorts of things, and it, it's it's starting from the ground up, because yeah, sure, governance and policy and you know, actual speaking to politicians is a route for 
whatever science or work that you're in. But it's about the constituents, right? So all the people who are going to be voting for these governments, if you get them interested in the policy, if you get them thinking about the way policy affects their business and their bottom line and their survival, that sounds mercenary. But still, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, you're, you're getting them thinking about the things that matter to them yeah. in a scale that's slightly bigger than who they are. And you know that, that's how you drive policy at a higher level as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, I would just encourage early career folks. I would encourage, you know, women. I would encourage LGBTQ scientists, you know, engineering, everything that they not shy away from these opportunities. I, I know it's, it's tough because the world seems like a... Anyway, I think we live in a world where a lot of people feel like they don't belong. And, um, yeah. and we absolutely need everybody who wants to be in STEAM to be there, right? Like, we need them. Mm. We need you in this space. Um, and we don't need someone else. We need you. And we need you how you mm. are. So come to us. And, um, and I guarantee you that... Uh, other people want to hear from you too. Policymakers, private sector, nonprofit, um, students, right? That and your future colleagues. So, um, so my hope is that um, that kind of message of if you're here and you want to be here, great, you belong. That's it. That's absolutely like very simple. Who That's belongs? The message. <laughs> Who belongs? Yes, <laughs> you can eat lunch with us. Exactly. Yes, come eat lunch with us. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So backtracking just a, more than just a little bit. Okay. But, you know, fire and agriculture is, you know, such a topical field of study. But how, like, what drew you to wanting to look into these areas anyway? I'm from the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky, and I grew up, um, I like to tell people I grew up on a farm on a mountain in the middle of a national forest, which is true. Um, and I, my parents... Uh, raised myself and my older siblings um, in some of the older traditional ways. So um, living off the land, growing crops. Um, I have cut down trees. I have killed chickens. Um, you know, I've been hunting. I know how to fish. I'm a good person to know if the zombie apocalypse happens, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> um, and so I, I was around forestry I was around agriculture um I saw and helped with prescribed burning um I lived through wildfires as a child um and as a teenager um because they're common they're common there um not like California where you can get them every year but every three to five years there's going to be a wildfire and so you know yeah. you live with that reality and when I had the opportunity, when I started learning about satellites and I started learning about um, uh, geospatial and, and computer mapping and data, and I was really late to technology and the internet. Like, I really didn't have a computer in front of me until high school. Um, I, I just, I had other things to do. I had, I had places to be outside <laughs> and, you know, like, um, I, I had tobacco fields to work in, soccer games to play and stuff. But the, um, but once I got into it, I loved it. And I still do. I still love it. I, I still, um, every day I look at a satellite imagery. Like every day. Every day I'm looking at satellite imagery. Even on the weekends. Because um, I, I enjoy it. I find it relaxing. Um, and 
once I realized that I could combine the technology with this like local traditional knowledge that I had, that I had gotten from my family and that I, that I was living, that uh, that was it. That's all it took. It was like, oh, great. That's I don't awesome. I don't have to be I don't have to give up this part of me that I don't want to give up to be someone who I want to be. Um, mm. I have had to make hard choices since then. Like I, I can't have my career and still live back home in Kentucky. That like that would be that would have been nice, yeah. but it's not a it's not a possibility. Um, so I have tried to stay as close as possible. Um, but of course, still still doing a lot of international work as as needed. I've cut down on travel in recent years because of small child and also reasons. <laughs> yeah, COVID. And then, um, and carbon, it too. You know, I, I really yeah. do think travel should be, um, there should be a reason. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't yeah. travel for vacations. You know, I try to do staycations or short, short distance things. Um, so, so that's really how I got into geography. And then when, when I entered a uh, university and I realized that geography was the discipline where I could, um, I could study the environment, but I didn't have to ignore humans and I could include data yeah. and technology in it. That's that's really why what drew me to it, because um, there is no besides Antarctica, <laughs> there's no place on the <laughs> earth where humans aren't a part of the ecosystem yeah. and a part of the landscape. And um, and so trying to think of nature as being this place devoid of human beings is, is just um, I don't know, some old colonial ideas of, right, of continents and landscapes. And that's just not reality. Um, and so, mm. so that's why I, I stuck with geography. And I, I didn't, you know, I took ecology classes and I've been employed as a field ecologist and because I can, I can learn plants and ID vegetation, you know, things like that. But I, geology, I've always found interesting and I've worked a lot with geoscientists, including volcanologists, but, um, but but geography is my home because it's it's just um it's where the world is. I get to study the world and I don't I don't have to leave yeah. anything behind. And and that's nice. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but and that's it, how it's yeah. so cool because yeah, and it, it's awesome because, you know, it, geography is so much more than just the land. Like you said, it's about the people as well. And you know, a lot of the work that you cover covers, you know, fire affects so many things like it affects the people it affects the agriculture it affects the land and it affects the way that we use the land and plus people are mainly causing the fires right like lightning yeah. is less than 10 percent <laughs> of fires you know so it's mainly yeah. humans yeah it is and you know it you can learn a lot from the way people make fires <laughs> yeah not in a pyro way but yeah you learn so many things about the way that people interact with nature in this way as well which is very awesome so you know what sort of work are you doing specifically with fire and sure. agriculture and ecology <laughs> so um let's see so recently i've been working on things like um if we wanted to use different histor historical and current satellite um what we call time series or archives so just think like kind of 1990s forward to understand uh, what landscapes are burning and who might be burning across the entire Arctic, right? So how yeah. could we use the satellite data and then link that to what's actually happening on the ground? So which 
you know, which ecosystems, which trees are burning in the boreal, uh, which um, tundra systems are most likely to burn. Where is the peat? And then when when the ignition is happening, who has caused the ignition or what has caused the ignition? So trying to link the satellite data to the actual ground-based um, fire mm. regime. We call it a regime. Um, but that's everything, like the timing, the ignition, the fuels, the vegetation, um, how the fire spreads, and then using kind of our eyes in the sky to understand that. So that's one of the projects I've been doing. The Arctic Council is on pause because of the war in Ukraine. Some of this work was, most of this work had started beforehand, and I had been working mm-hmm. in Eurasia and North America um, in these systems since about 2008. Uh, so it was, I was able to keep that going um more recently in the spring i spent almost three months in finland and i worked with my finnish and nordic colleagues um working with them because they have a lot of expertise there on fire um where they Mm -hmm. actually want to reintroduce prescribed burning so not too dissimilar actually to australia where there have been some (laughs) less extreme events than australia but some extreme events and definitely some understanding that maybe they have overmanaged the land and removed fire from the landscape in such a way that it has, you know, decreased the ecological functioning. It's hurt biodiversity. It's potentially even causing more carbon emissions because it's not allowing for peat systems to rebuild and respond. And, um, yeah. you know, and, and like in the high northern latitudes, particularly as we get closer to permafrost areas it really matters how we manage the land um and we have we have to figure out how to get along with each other um like at this moment there's going to be one country that's not going to be a part of this conversation but you know uh i like as i like to say and one of my colleagues uh his name is justin fain we used to work together he's now at NOAA. but one of the things we used to say is that russia is most of the arctic but not all of the arctic Right. Not all of the Arctic mm. is Russia. Russia is just most. So like a little under 60%. Um, but still, there's all this other part that has to be saved, that has to be worked on. And so it really, it's really important to understand these impacts on the Arctic and this transition between the boreal um, and the Arctic and, and how our management of fire um, will impact those to release even more carbon from the ground, right, to, yeah. as it thaws. Um, or just because we've mismanaged timber and energy extraction. Um, And then recently, and this is just in the last couple of years, it's happened during COVID, you know, as we were working on this, it became quite clear that there were lots of, first of all, first off in the Arctic Council, there are six permanent indigenous participants uh, across the Mm Pan-Arctic. And it was quite clear that they were holding on to cultural practices and wanted to continue these beneficial cultural practices of, of prescribed fire, of cultural burning. Um, and yeah. and while we're parts of different working groups or expert groups, we also found the same results. Like this, these are things that should be happening. It's clear in the sci- in Western science that this needs to continue. And so one mm. of the things I've been um, starting to develop, and it's, it's a little slow, but I'm, I'm hoping to... Um, recruit some early career people to work with me um, in the spring, but is to think about um, trying to quantify across a landscape the the benefits um, of this um, kind of early and late season cultural burning for preventing mm-hmm. extreme wildfires. 
And then yeah. understanding the impact of these smaller fires on, on air quality. Um, and just understanding what that means for like the larger, um, what we call short-lived climate forcers, which are essentially, if you can think of the black part of smoke, that soot, mm-hmm. that's black carbon. And when it is released in smoke <laughs> early in the spring and it deposits on sea ice in the Arctic, it's actually warming the sea ice from the top as well. So as you can imagine, mm-hmm. if you have a dark colored towel on a white sand beach, your yeah. towel becomes very hot. Same thing yeah. is happening to the ice. So climate change is kind of melting the ice from all around. And then this black carbon, because of the albedo effect, is also melting it from the top. And so one of the things would be like to try to quantify the impact of these. And my hypothesis yeah. is that there probably is very little impact because they're so low-level burning, that low-level energy, the power, um, the fire radiative mm. power is so low, that the smoke is probably not transporting. And so that's one of the things I'm working on is like linking this human practice to this concern about air quality and, and, and of course, the ice melt. And, and I think my hypothesis, my working hypothesis is that it won't be a big deal. Of course, we need to do the experiment, we need to do the research. <laughs> um, so can't tell yeah. you if I can reject or fail to reject that hypothesis yet. Um, and then, um, and trying to do that in parallel, and if I can, um, in, a, in such a way where I'm collaborating with some of the permanent participants, like, like say the Gwich'in Council International, and such that they are also paid for their work, right? Because I really feel like mm. anyone who's contributing to any project needs to be paid. Um, mm. And a, a side note is that every student who works for me is paid from undergraduate level up. Like I just anyone cool. who comes and works for me must be paid because I couldn't be in science unless people paid me. And so I feel like they must be paid. But that same ethos has to go for larger international and um, to, in, in just large group in collaborations. And particularly, I think it's it's not just that it's a sensitive topic. It's just that it's the right thing to do. If we're working with indigenous mm-hmm. groups, we should be paying them. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> this is they're, they're bringing very important knowledge to the table. So we should be paying them for that. It's not. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you pay your experts, you pay your experts. If you're in a consulting team and somebody adds even 10 lines of code, that's not for free. You know, <laughs> they get to charge yeah. an hour. Or half an hour or whatever it took. <laughs> um, so it's still they need to be paid. So that's um so that's what I'm working on for fire right now. Um the second what I'm working on uh, for fire is thinking about how to use commercial satellite data, so very high resolution data. And here I'm actually working in almost an exclusively all female science team, which I rarely get to do. So this has been quite quite that's a cool. pleasure. Yeah, it's very neat. Um so it's led by a colleague of mine at NASA Langley. Her name is um Am- Dr. Amber Soya. And we're trying to figure out if this very high-resolution commercial satellite data can help us understand exactly how much human-caused burning is happening in different ecosystems in North America. And Mm -hmm. we're finding just orders of magnitude more fire when we use the higher-resolution data, which we knew because we had done field work. We were aware of this. But, um, But to be able to quantify it is really cool. And to understand how the commercial platforms might be useful for this is also a really neat, um, uh, really neat application. And and again, that kind of public-private partnership. Like, how can 
you know, private sector help with climate solutions or understanding ecological management. Um, and then uh, for agriculture, uh, right now I'm working with a large team um, led by a, mo a climate modeling group at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. But we're working with a large team across four countries in East and West Africa. And we're trying to figure out what near-term climate futures, how they will impact regional agricultural um, food security and food systems for four large cities. Mm -hmm. So in Burkina Faso, in Ethiopia, in Kenya, um, and in Rwanda. And we are taking into account things like human health, um, the role of women. So if women um, do not have access to the right markets, to the right food systems, then it doesn't really matter if you're producing enough food. Families are not getting fed. And I, I yeah. think that that's something that gets missed a lot in our conversations about like, will we produce enough food? Uh, maybe. Yeah, sure. But, but are we getting the food to the people? Right. And then, yeah. and, you know, and to be quite frank, like in general, mothers are the people who are feeding families, not, not solely, but, Oftentimes, it is women who are making sure food is getting to families. So we, we want to try to yeah. figure out the impact of that. So that's a really neat um, project. And I've been able to work with two PhD students um, who are from the global south on that project, including one from Africa, because we really wanted to... Um, um, if we didn't want to do parachute science, I don't know. What is it called in Australia? You know what I mean? Like... We all have worked with African partners and have, you know, given time and volunteered our efforts and expertise. But still, when you're working on these kinds of professional projects, you still want to be sure that you are training the best scientists and you're not leaving behind whole continents. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I understand what you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's. Yeah, you just kind of dropping in doing your stuff but then you'll they have nothing to work with afterwards kind of thing right yeah what was the point of that yeah. yes exactly so yeah <laughs> um so we've been very fortunate to be able to work with students from um algeria and then also malaysia um so to try to kind of build up tropical and um global south you know um scientists future scientists who will be the leaders you know in 10 15 years um so that's, yeah. yeah. And I think that's really important for, um, I can say, you know, I guess with my NASA hat on or just as a NASA funded researcher, as a U.S. researcher, um, that if if we're going to do these really cool NASA projects, it's great that we're also um, helping, of course, our home country, but our home planet and our home planet is yeah. everybody. So absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's always really nice to be able to. Um, you know, contribute to domestic things. I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about, it, but also I'm very passionate about this international um, cooperation because, you know, Australia is not going to solve climate change on its own. Japan is not <laughs> going to solve climate change on its own. The U.S. is not going to solve exactly. Yes, yeah, so we're going to have to do this together. That the cross-disciplinary collaboration for this is just amazing because, yeah, all the stuff that we do affects people, and people are all these other things, and. Yeah, being able to look at the way that culturally people use the land or mm -hmm. the way that society has evolved and developed in different areas because of the culture. 
that's such a big thing with the way that all all of the science and the way that we use everything actually works. Well, I think it matters. You know, NASA's mission is, of course, um, gosh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but of course it is to like, you know, to explore space and the universe and to understand the universe, but also to protect our home planet. Yes. And so that's what NASA Earth is often focused on. So we use a lot of space-borne like satellites um, and Mm -hmm. uh, NASA science and technology but to protect our home planet, all that science and technology, of course, is going into lots of other directions, including um, being used by small businesses. It becomes open source to anyone who wants to use yes. it. All the data is open and transferable. Um, and I think that that's I think that that's a really interesting change. And, and maybe you see this in your field as well. Um but mm. this kind of idea of open source software, open source data, open collaboration, open platforms. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago when satellite data used to cost as much as um, $1,700 US yeah. per scene. You know, like it that is before my ago. time. It's before my like school yeah. days, but but not by much. And and mm. so, you know, I, I knew people in graduate school who were, you know, years ahead of me, but they had had to write grants to buy their satellite data. Yes. You know, and like, we don't do that. <laughs> we never do that. <laughs> um, so it was such like a it was such a change. Um, and now mm. it's just, of course, companies share some of what they do. Maybe not all of it. No one's asking for all of it, but they share enough that there's this. um incentive to collaborate to build more right because more collaboration more access it it means right more honestly like more business cases more use cases absolutely yeah yeah because you don't know what the data is going to be able to be used for and you know having open data open systems open infrastructure just encourages citizen science so even if you're not a researcher even if you're not practiced at you know, writing grants and applying for, you know, special permits for doing things, you can have access to data and some people will just think about using it in a different way. And suddenly a new field of research comes into play. Yeah. And, you know, it it means that you're opening up all these opportunities for innovation to this massive range of people you didn't have access to it before. That's right. And one person can't possibly have every idea for the use. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So as you open it up, you get all these other ideas, and and mm. and that's really interesting, right? And that's how we get innovation. Um, so yep. I think I'm I, that's I, I'm I'm really excited about that. There's actually NASA is doing a huge initiative to transform to all open science, so to all open source science, which I think is great. You know, it's it going to take a bit. It's going to take a little bit. Second. <laughs> <laughs> That could it be tomorrow? Give us a minute. Um, but the but it will it will be something that um that I hope is then you know joined by by other countries, you know. Um and and then to have such like a a, a, glo- a and then a global partnership around open platforms and science. I mean, wow, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that would be amazing. And I can say for fire. That what happens in the southern hemisphere is really important for the northern hemisphere, right? Like our fire seasons, um, for example, um, El Nino, right? So the, the El Nino Southern Oscillation is often yep. a predictor of fire activity 
um, forests in Southeast Asia and Oceania, including Australia. But Ben is also a predictor of fire activity throughout the Amazon and then into the Western U.S. and Canada. Um, and so, um, and we wouldn't have known that if there hadn't been these massive collaborations across continents Absolutely. where people were sharing information about fire seasons and climate observations. Mm -hmm. um, and so it allows us, like, if Australia has a, has a significant extreme fire season, unfortunately, it always seems to start around Christmas time. But um, yeah, yeah, summer, yeah, <laughs> summer, summer in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, um, Ben. Um, that's usually a warning to us. Okay. We're probably going to have an extreme summer season too. So that's we need, fascinating. So we need to start working. Yeah. 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 So what's the relationship there between what happens in our fire mm. season versus what happens in your fire season? So the um, as I understand it, and I'm sure we'll get some climate specialists who will comment, so please correct me. Um, and so <laughs> climate specialists, if I'm wrong. In the comments, but um, generally La Nina, which is when Enso is not flaring up and the water is not warm. So when the water is cooler in the Pacific, it tends to make for wetter summers in Southeast Asia and Oceania. It also makes for wetter summers then in, in um, along the Amazon, uh, along the equator, and then into the Northern Hemisphere when our hmm. summer comes. El Nino is the opposite. Such that yeah. you will have your first dry summer, extremely tend to be dry, yeah. extremely dry summers. And so will we. <laughs> but um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But but it's but we're, we've had this then wet winter. And then El Nino shows up and that wet winter means that we've had fuels, we have vegetation build up. Mm -hmm. So it tells so us like, it gets dry, OK, a lot more. exactly. Yep. And then we have bigger fires. So if we watch the if we watch the summer southern hemispheres um, fire season, and the, which is our winter time, but your summer time, then we mm -hmm. know, okay, it's extreme. We have a likelihood of having a similar extreme fire season. Yep. Same kind of dry weather patterns will set in. Prepare yep, now. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So so that's how. Yeah. It's um. I mean it's. Of course, it's not one to one. It doesn't always happen. Um, and then I think what's really interesting is a lot of our satellite systems now, um, and this has been cooperation between, of course, um, observations from Australian uh, scientists, but also um, NASA and, and ESA, the European Space Agency. But the last extreme fire season in Australia in 2020, I believe 2020, there were these huge <laughs> streams of smoke up into the upper troposphere that ended up circling around the planet a few times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and that causes lots of interesting potential for global climate. Like it can seed storms. It can cause mm -hmm. cloud condensation nuclei to cause um, different types of um, cyclones and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So it like, um, it can cause um, deposition of smoke onto the the glaciers in the Andes, causing yeah. melting in there. Like it's it's um it's a very interesting kind of global system, and I think that's really yeah. the power of satellites. Um, that 
in mass, right, now that we have these huge data systems and cloud-based servers and um, ability to do, uh, you know, rapid data visualization, is that we can see real time these global systems linked to each other. That's so cool. I can see why you spend a lot of time looking at this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but it also means that we're connected. And I think that maybe, yeah. um, you know, I'm looking for sometimes these physical and meteorological mechanizations. But to me, it always just feels like, you know, I have a good friend who lives in New Zealand. And so sometimes it's mm. like, she's, she's American, um, but she married a Kiwi. So it's like, the it's a very interesting, like, kind of feel more connected to her when I look at the satellite imagery yeah or like you know sometimes I look at the satellite imagery and um and I feel connected to my colleagues in Finland because I'm looking at Finland it's like oh I could just send them a message you know or yeah um you know I haven't really been able to reach some of my um Russian colleagues in Siberia it's probably not wise to reach out to them now it might cause problems but Sometimes I look at the satellite there and I, I think about them and I think about you the think family. about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I and I hope they're well. And um and I I hope in the future we'll be able to work together again. Um but then also I look at satellite imagery of what's happening in Ukraine and I think about um that there are some terrible consequences and some yeah, you know, some pathways I hope we don't go down as a globe. Mm. You know, so, um, yeah, so I think that that's like, when I look at the satellite imagery, it's it's not just for these physical mechanization, which I've been trained to do, but um, yeah. it is linking it. It's about it. the connections. Yeah, it's about the connections. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of these things, because they're so far away, like it doesn't matter whether it's war or anything else, you feel distance from it. But looking at the satellite images and the data, it it connects you because it makes you feel that there are more connections there than there were before. We're not that far cool. apart, really. I mean, yeah. I always say, the, you know, it's a small world. You're usually only yeah. like, what, 10 connections from somebody? Truly? Yeah. You know? I think uh, <laughs> it yeah. used to be six degrees of separation. I think that's actually shrunk a little bit more. I don't know what the current number is. Yeah. I mean, it's so yeah. small, really. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I would hope for some people I know that this would would um, help them think about solutions and policies differently. Um, I, yeah. I think that it's a mistake to think that all people are like this. Some people are not <laughs> wired this way. And, um, uh, you know, like uh, there are people who truly have authoritarian personalities and we just all kind of need to like <laughs> realize that that's going, that that's, you know, that's a part of human civilization. Um, they're not a majority of people, but they're there, you know, so we have to talk louder than them. Um, yeah. Um, but I think more of us can be reached through the connections than, than the ones who crave sameness and order and one single Absolutely. authority. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I guess like geography is not a very good discipline now, modern geography, I say now, um, to be that type of person because you, to be this type of single-minded, say, you know, sameness order person, because, um, 
you you get trained to very quickly see connections, right? That that things yeah. are connected to each other, that people are connected to each other, that landscapes are connected to each other. And I've had the privilege of being, you know, in parts of, you know, of Russia where I'm like, oh man, this could be Alberta. <laughs> you know, it looks like Canada to me. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and I've been in parts of um, like northeastern Quebec. And I thought, man, this looks just exactly like the Great Lakes in Michigan, right? In the U.S. And it's yeah. like, um, and even when I was in Finland, I was like, this this could be Michigan. You know, like, it just felt like I had been <laughs> in this place, you know. And um, But similarly, um, I'd been to parts of um, Chile and South Africa look very similar, you know, like, um, and, and. And it's like I see that as like kind of a gift. Like we actually live on the on, we have this really interesting planet where, because of the geography and the geology and the climate, we tend to repeat ecosystems. And isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah, it is cool. <laughs> it is cool because <laughs> we just we can go yeah. and see these different. But then we still have different people and there's different cultures and customs and animals. You know. Um, yeah, I still think when I was a child, one of the things that blew my mind was a platypus because I was just like, that's not real. But it is real, you know, and it's amazing. You know, it's an amazing yep. thing. Yeah. Of course, what's interesting to me is that Europeans find. Do you know this thing between North America and Europe is this idea of a moose versus an elk? Have you heard this debate? A... Yes, I have heard this debate because okay. I do remember making this idle inquiry once in my head, thinking, <laughs> what's the difference? And I looked it up and went, okay, backing away. Yes, now. yeah, okay. <laughs> so the main difference is just that in North America, we have a secondary large deer, and that is called an mm -hmm. elk. And then the very largest thing is called a moose, and it's based off an, an indigenous word for this animal. And in Europe, they call the very largest animal an elk, because they don't have this secondary large deer. <laughs> they just have a smaller <laughs> deer. So it's so they have deer and elk, and we have deer, elk, moose. And that's yeah. it. But it's such like it's such a weird, like essentially we have very similar animals, except it's one <laughs> it's one deer. <laughs> this one also large deer. So <laughs> but yes. And it's like how reindeer and caribou are not quite the same. Yeah, you because know, reindeer are slightly, slightly tame. They're not wild, but they're not really pets. They're tame-ish. And I can say as someone who has encountered them, they're kind of tame. You know, but like caribou are wild <laughs> animals. You know, ca caribou are not coming near you. They're, yeah. Yeah. Or if they do, like, you need to rethink your position at that moment because you probably <laughs> do not want it that close to you. Or you, or it could be hunting season and they're very delicious. So you could think about, you know, <laughs> Um, so they are very, you know, very different, but, but, but still similar. And it's interesting that we have, um, I don't know, these shared landscapes, right? So we have a shared planet, yeah. we have shared landscape. Yeah. And that's, what's really cool about geography. And, um, and I know it's an old science. It's one of the first sciences, right? The study of the earth. And yet it still persists yeah. because, uh, because it's we, always changing. Yeah. And we are products of this earth. This is this is our home. Mm. And so it's essentially the study of of home. It's it is home economics on a global scale. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> Cuz it's it's incredibly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. It yeah, it, it's it's a great space to be in because it, there's just so much to it as we were saying before that you know it's cross-disciplinary you're looking at so many aspects of the way that not only is you know the natural landscape but the human landscape as well and you know just having you explain all about the uh climate systems just then it's like ah that puts so many additional pieces together that i hadn't put together before like th- this this makes so much more sense because you know, I was thinking, you know, the Boyle region, you know, what, why is that so specific about the fires in that area and why we need to look into that? And then you're explaining about the climate system. So I see, right. Okay. So because of all the stuff and the melts and, right. you know, exposing more, you know, combustible matter, it's like this becomes a massive issue because all this permafrost region is suddenly impacted by the fact that there's not so much permafrost. That's right. And it's like, right. Makes sense now. All of it's coming together. <laughs> So the human species is somewhere between 500,000 and 700,000 years old. I mean, it's, it's still up in mm. debate, but we're at least 500,000 years old. There's permafrost that's over 750,000 years old. Yeah. So there are there's frozen soil in the high northern latitudes that's older than our species. And yeah, it, it's those kinds of numbers are so hard to fathom because we don't normally work in those numbers. <laughs> no, no. I've heard someone call it deep time or deep ecology. Um, yeah. And I will say that during lockdown, one of the things um, that I would do to keep sane, because uh, I my young child was in a toddler and has become a child, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the um, was that mama would go on hikes and I would go fossil yeah. hunting and I would find these uh, uh, these uh, the the only carnivorous coral from the Ordovician period, <laughs> so they're four hundred and fifty million year old. Coral. That's cool. And I would just pick them up, and I would just look at them, and I would think like, this is four hundred and fifty million years old. This is my species is a fraction of the age of this thing from an ancient seabed, at a time when the continents we live on now were one. Right, so. Yep. Um, so this too will pass, right? This too shall pass. <laughs> this is, um, and it was, it was how I would like keep my sanity a little bit. Cause it, you know, these yeah. things, these, yeah, that time felt long. Um, it felt, um, it, it was, it, I think humans are, we don't do well with uncertainty. I think I'm trying to be like everything is uncertain. <laughs> I'm trying to be kind about this. Let me be generous. We don't do all well with uncertainty. Um, and so uh, when people people do ask me, like, uh, well, what do you think about climate change? And you know, do you have any hope? And it's like, well, I'm not really giving up. I don't. I don't know that. I'm really not the kind of my my personality is such that like I'm not a very optimistic person anyway so like you shouldn't come to me looking for very hope. pragmatic yes i'm a very pragmatic person. yes um so um but what i think the perspective we should have is that our ancestors had lives that were harder than the ones that we have and no it's not easy <laughs> right now and uncertainties sucks but just like suck it up and do the work and and hope and hope that it gets better but it only gets better because you're doing the work so yeah that i mean i don't yeah i guess the buddha says the only way out of pain is through it so 
Yes. I think that we're just in this moment of, um, I guess what Finding Gen Z, yeah, would call the millennial pause. That's what I hear. But the um, we're in a moment of pause where the world is trying to figure out should do we go through it, you know? And and the mm. the real the real thing is that like that's actually our only option. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's a fine option to have. We can make it through it. I, you know, it's just mm. um. We made it through the first two years of COVID. This next year is probably, you know, let's hope, knock on wood, that's better. Um, and, but it isn't the first two years, you know, like it's, mm. yeah. And even if things look bad at times, they're not going to look like they did then. And I, yeah. I think that there's like a knee jerk reaction to be like, don't talk about it at all because I don't want to think about those bad times. Um, and and that's like that is an understandable trauma response like you know, like, <laughs> but it isn't it isn't how we're actually going to keep managing um things yeah and so um, that's that's a short-term solution it's a short-term solution for for a long pandemics are a long-term problem and and climate change yeah. is a long-term problem but it's also an opportunity you know like mm. it is an opportunity for everyone to stay connected and be connected and make decisions and plans that are connected um mm. yeah like i'm i'm not someone i think we should all travel less i don't think we should never fly again i i do not see the purpose i do not think it serves the world to be in a place where we do not talk to each other or meet each other or yeah. know that we are more similar than we are um different you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a that that's seems right. like a dark age to me. But we should still try to cut carbon emissions as much as possible. And so, of course, it's going to mean a little bit of travel here and there. But um, and that's OK. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I still I, I think, too, for diversity and equity and inclusion, that all scientific conferences should have an online option. It does not make sense. Yeah to suddenly decide everything has to be in person again like it's just yeah people have families they they have to take care of loved ones who are ill they themselves are immunocompromised or or are not in a position to afford to travel <laughs> like just give them the option to connect online yeah and yeah. also you're opening up access to knowledge to a wider range of people mm -hmm. and you know again it's about the open systems and you know encouraging things like citizen science if you open up conferences of all sorts it doesn't have to be academic just any sort of conference that you're holding for your specialist topic being able to open up an online option gives a lot more people the ability to participate and contribute even if you know not as you know speakers yeah. as guests because they're still part of the broader community that's right and it still gives them the opportunity to share in that yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, when did you start this? Did you start this over COVID or right before COVID or? Haha, <laughs> it's yeah. funny because I started it in May 2020. So it was during COVID. Yeah. It wasn't intended to be a COVID thing. It was only then because it was a procrastination thing because it took me a year to finally go, right, I'm going to do something about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I chose a really bad time because it was at the time when there was a shortage and all the equipment you need to be able to do online video stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, that was fun. <laughs> we went through a sort a shortage of like um I know someone who waited six months for a laptop. And I don't mean like a special yeah. laptop, just a laptop. Yeah, just a laptop. Yeah, yeah just a laptop. Yeah. Couldn't get it. Yeah webcams and microphones and anything to do with kind of online communication <laughs> there was just shortage everywhere couldn't get any of it and there were at least six month waiting periods of like fabulous <laughs> I shouldn't have procrastinated this is my this is my penance for having to procrastinate this <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but but here you have it right and then absolutely I have to say um I do occasionally get asked to do in-person things and I'll I'll do them uh the ones mm. i think are um where there's mutual benefit um but when people ask me to do the online ones um i almost always say yes because i know that it's going to be more democratic in a way you know it's going to be open to more yeah. people yeah 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 so sure and yeah, yeah. this is exactly it <laughs> yeah yeah so great let's do that Definitely. absolutely so we can probably start to wind up now because it's getting late for you. Yeah. So, yeah, some of those other soft questions. What hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work? Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm actually kind of a dancing fool. Like, I love to dance. <gasps> um, and I yeah. will take any dance class. I will. I used to teach, like, a fitness dance class. Um, that's cool. love Zumba. I love latin dance um i've even taken like um arabic folk dance and even like you know be belly dance which i know is not maybe copacetic but um still Come fun on. if you're um, enjoying it what's yes that's yeah, fine yeah. <laughs> well i'm trying to avoid as much as possible cultural appropriation but um but it is uh i love it i love dancing um and i'm i'm really good i'm really good at it and yeah, and that has nothing to do with what <laughs> with anything I do in my That's science awesome. at all. Yeah, and people are usually a little um, when my colleagues see me dance, like you know, uh, they're a little shocked. <laughs> I would say that I can like <laughs> keep up and stuff. Um, and then uh, yeah, and my students will often be like surprised that I can like mimic their TikTok videos or whatever. So. <laughs> It's just, hey, that's a skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I have the I have the rhythm. That's what I would say. I was born with the rhythm or whatever. Yeah, that's so that's cool. that's my hobby that is um that is unrelated to, you know, my my day job or my life job is being a mom, right? So, is that yeah. I I'm a yeah, I'm a dancing fool. I love to dance. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. That, that's very cool. And it 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 takes you know, it, it's a skill, but it also takes a lot of courage and just self-confidence to be able to do that. And I know because I've done a few different dancing things over my life. Yes. And it's hard <laughs> because I, I, I feel very self-conscious and I need to get over it. <laughs> oh, I, I, what's funny is when I'm dancing, I don't feel any self-conscious at all. I'm not. Cool. I'm just. I'm I, it's just me. And the music. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't care what people think and like, and I even learned like as a child, I learned some traditional dances, which is, um, like, uh, you might not know this, but it's called clogging, but it's like what happened to Irish oh, yeah. river dance and when it got stuck in that posture. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, and then I learned how to do like some barn dancing and line dancing, um, and things like that. But, um, I think we all did that at some yeah. point. Yeah. 
but I, but I like, I, I love, um, I love all forms of dance and yeah. And I don't, I just don't, I don't care what people think when I'm dancing at all. Like at all. That's cool. Yeah. That's I'm not awesome. normally love like, <laughs> yeah. So when I'm giving a talk, I'm normally like, you know, how does my, how does everything look? How's my hair? How's, you know, and when I'm dancing, it's just, um, whatever, whatever. Yeah. The spirit takes me and then I'm, it's fine. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Cool. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? I've read so many books. What's funny is that as an adult, I don't read fiction anymore. I only read nonfiction. Because you're busy reading papers. Yep. Or I read nonfiction when I like, <laughs> listen. I do, I do a lot of audiobooks when I'm walking or hiking. Um, so I really liked, let's see, as a child. Um, oh, man. Okay. To be quite frank, the first book that came to mind was that I had this children's illustrated Bible when I was a kid, and I would really? read it just front to back, just constantly. Um, and like, uh, and I say this is like I got kicked out of vacation Bible school because I kept asking where the dinosaurs. <laughs> um, I kept asking where the dinosaurs were in the Bible, and then it was funny. It was actually like Ooh, a distant you were that kid. <laughs> I was like. Yeah. And then my distant cousin was actually teaching the class and he kicked me out. And then my older siblings like got mad at him. And then so my mother like comes to pick us up and we're sitting on the stairs of the church, just sitting out there waiting for her. And she's, you know, she's of course like, okay, <laughs> you're supposed to be inside. Not. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is I was, when I was, I was just home and, um, and I saw that book and I thought about, thought about bringing it with me to um to give to to my child um so when she starts reading she could read it if she wants and it's just that the illustrations stick in my mind but also mm. i will say this it has come in handy a few times as a scientist to be well versed in in a yeah. religion in a major religion is what I would say. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm from like a Protestant Christian background. Because there have been times at 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 scientific conferences when like str- like si- street side preachers have tried to like say mean things to the scientists as they're walking by, and and I can just be like, let's do this, right? Like you tell me <laughs> where in the Bible does it say this, right? Because because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say. Anything. Um, but that book sticks with me because of the illustrations. I, I looked at it, I don't know, 10, 10 or so years ago, and the illustrator had actually gone t- to an archaeology program. And so a lot of the drawings were trying to be realistic of like Hebrew and Aramaic cultures at the time and That's also cool. like what Roman and Greeks, yeah, would have looked like. And so it's, um, it looks, and, and and the other thing is that the people aren't white in the book. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, Jesus is a They're little a little Apollo like. <laughs> Jesus is a little Apollo like. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, his his hair definitely has like blonde highlights, and his eyes could maybe be darker. <laughs> um, being a stylist, yes. Um, but you know, but I remember distinctly like the David and Goliath, and like the Delilah and Samson, and and them having um appropriately colored skin tones for people from that region you know <laughs> and yeah anyway so that book always just like stuck with me 
Um, but a couple of the other books that came to mind was um, there's a book called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it's mm-hmm. a book about um, black tenement farmers in Mississippi during Jim Crow. And it's told from the vantage point of their, uh, I can't remember if she's 10 or 12 year old daughter. I think about that now. And I think that maybe my third grade teacher was much more radical than I thought she was. Um, <laughs> but um, to have us read that. Just very subtly subversive. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it left us uh, like a sense of um, in, injustice with me. Mm. Yeah. That, that that wasn't fair. Yeah. And, um, and that's not okay. And so, uh, um, yeah, so I really like that book. I really like that book. And then um, I think it's called Lily of the Valley. It was a book about a young woman. I have to look this up. Now you're making, but I remember this <laughs> book because she's a young woman in the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia, which I'm from Kentucky. But the, um, and it's like the 19... 19- 60s 1970 1960s because like they're getting electrification i i think that maybe people outside that of in the u.s and in the west of the world like there are parts of the u.s that developed decades later than the rest of the country and i just happen mm-hmm. to be from one of them but like how like if there was extra food on the table it had to go to the menfolk that if the cooking needed to be done she couldn't do her schoolwork and she needed to do that and mm-hmm. um and that book always stuck with me because um um neither of my grandmothers really had a life that they wanted um because they weren't allowed to and again I think maybe it just kind of stuck with me as this like sense of like injustice <laughs> like this mm-hmm. wasn't fair yeah but this wasn't fair at a young age like kids develop this sense of injustice you know and it's a very strong sense and you don't like until you become a parent you, or you're around kids a lot, you don't realize just how strong that sense develops. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating when you start having these conversations with you know, your young kids and they start making, asking these questions and making, putting these pieces together about things and yeah. forming very strong opinions about them. And often they're very mature kind of, thought processes that you're going through to get here from very simple ideas and yeah and often when you read books like that as a kid or as a young child or Mm -hmm. you know young adult you know those senses just get fired again because you start thinking about putting all those pieces together as your worldview expands and that's what makes it so fascinating (laughs) yeah and I can start to see that um you know we have some holidays in the u.s around you know civil rights era and other national prominent national leaders who weren't presidents and um Mm -hmm. and and i at a very early age started explaining them to my child so that she knew why Mm -hmm. yeah the why we had them and i wanted her i wanted her to know that and and then she could you know she could just do with it what she wanted you know but yeah but I, but I, I just, I wonder, I just wonder to have it because I just yes. felt like once I, one, I think that people, uh, have sanitized Martin Luther King Jr. in a way that's not helpful. 
and then um yeah. and is also uh untrue but then mm. um yeah so then uh, but the other thing is um she hasn't asked yet but she'll learn his life um and his death mm. and and i you know i i want her to to know why that it's important so yeah yeah you know and why he was important yeah. And his family, and you know, and, and all these things. So, yeah, but but I because I think because when I learned about it, it instilled in me a sense of injustice, and that I have not been able to move past. I think um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, other <laughs> other soft questions. <laughs> other soft questions <laughs> that didn't go soft at all. <laughs> okay, so less soft, but still probably yeah, it's all right. What advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I went to I went to graduate school because I needed the money. Yeah. And um I could make more money uh as a grad student than I could back home just like working a job. Um and which I know was not the case for more grad students. But, so um my advice is that if you want to do it, you should you should do it. There's, but there's no, there's no time scale. So the advice that you should ignore is that you should do it all in one go. Um, I started a PhD program at 23 because I had skipped mm. a year of school. So I'd done everything early. And it has worked out fine for me, um, but I wouldn't do that again. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't you'd get that. a bit more work and industry experience before you did it. Just, a, just a break. Just break. Just have more life. Just a, um, yeah. I don't know. Also, maybe don't get married before you're thirty. I don't. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I mean, there's, I have. Don't marry another PhD. Don't like. Um, and again, this is all very like personal. Um, I know. I do know some couples who are PhDs and they're great and they've been able to make careers and it's no problem. But most PhD couples struggle. And even most people who have advanced degrees who aren't private sector will struggle, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the reality. And then in private sector yeah. is not a guarantee of a job either. You know, it's a different mm-hmm. it's a different um, it's a different system, and you have to learn to roll with it. You know, and yep. I guess I would say if you're gonna the advice is if you want to do it, do it. Mm-hmm. But but don't take anyone's advice on like when or the trajectory or how or where the only thing that really matters is that you make the right connections and network in graduate school and that you get out what you put in Mm. and if and um and that means respect too if you're putting in respect and you're not getting it back from your department from your uh your advisor um you will leave yeah it's just because otherwise you'll yeah it has to be an environment that you feel safe and respected in otherwise you're going to burn out yeah and yeah you know that that's the worst thing after putting in so much time and you're like committing so much of your energy and your passion to doing a thing only to stick around in a space where you don't feel comfortable doing it that's right yeah um you know and i think we live in a time too where people have to think about you know if you're lgbtq you need to be in a place where you feel safe. Yeah. You know, and if um and if you if you're 
a person who can get pregnant, if you're a woman who's concerned about fertility issues, you need to be in a place where you, those things are going to be protected. Yeah. Because grad school is, God damn it, it's stressful enough. Like, you don't need to be worried about those other <laughs> things. So um, I think sometimes people will give you advice like, oh, just get into the program that gives you the most money. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's a place you want to live. It's a place you can thrive. It's it's close to family. You have to think about all the factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I don't. I'm the type of person who can kind of pick up and restart, because um, I've mm-hmm. had to do it, uh, and I'm from um, one of the few migrant communities in the U.S. So like, I know how to do it. Um, yeah. Most people don't like to do it, and don't don't do it well. And um, like, don't force that on yourself over and over and over again. Mm. Yeah. So like, if you are settled in a place and that's the place you want to be, make that work. Yeah. 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 There's no time limit. There's no, there's no hourglass. Yeah. And just to elaborate a bit more about the uh, don't marry a PhD. (laughs) um, I'm guessing you're referring to like, someone else has mentioned this before and I've forgotten. There's a special term for it. The fact there's a term for it is quite concerning um yeah the two-body problem it's called a two-body thank you the two-body problem that's Mm -hmm. right exactly yeah because you know you've got two people with possibly similar or very different careers in academia or you know high science or whatever you want to call it and because you are now a specialist in your area the number of jobs and the number of places these jobs are available are very limited so if one of you wants to advance your career the other one has to move and yeah, it, it, it's such a challenging problem to be presented because you're, you're, you're basically yeah. finding a partner in someone who's as high achieving as you are, which is both complementary and you know, problematic at times. But then you also have to consider geography because mm-hmm. in order to advance, in order to be able to mm-hmm. excel in the space that you're in, you might have to move for it because we're not in a time and place where remote in these kinds of areas is a thing that can be done yet so yeah it it's yeah lots of different issues relating to the two-body problem <laughs> yeah um i mean it mainly it mainly impacts academics but not only that's right yeah um it yeah. can of course people who are um highly specialized in private sector and nonprofit as well and they don't exactly. even have to have a phd to do this if you're highly specialized yeah. um it doesn't really matter the level of degree but the um but for phds in particular yeah, and I've had I've because had this, academic placements. It's, it's academic placements. There's a two body problem. Yep. If you can, don't marry another one of you because <laughs> yeah, not always an option. No, 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 it's not. No, I know. Yeah, and I'm I'm not telling you like don't marry the love of your life <laughs> because of a two body problem. Um, but mar- but marriage is more than those first few years of romantic butterflies in your tummy. You know, it's there's mm. there's more to it. Um, and you're building a life together and that means both of you have to feel like you have options and yeah. so two-body problem means that usually one person has an option and the other person is being dragged along yeah. and and it's while it's generally um in a heterosexual couple it's a woman um it's not always um i yeah. I, I i can think of a, of a colleague who has been fairly success, successful and negotiating a two-body problem um, more recently. But what it has meant is that um, 
one one of the partners, you know, one spouse did not get a tenured position, but rather a permanent teaching position. And that was not what they mm. wanted. So they yeah. settled. And it's it's hard because once you start to settle down, once you start to, you know, establish roots, it becomes a challenge to look for ways to advance your career mm-hmm. in various ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, having to negotiate that for yep. two makes that even more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like, and, um, and I guess like full disclosure is I, you know, I am married. Um, um, people who follow me on Twitter might not pick that up because I don't talk about it. Um, and I don't talk about it because my, um, husband is very private, uh, but also, mm. um, I don't think it, anybody needs to know, you know what I mean? Like no, I'm not on matter. there. Yeah. I'm not on there to meet people in that way. So I'm doing this as a professional and like a professional way. So, um, why does it matter? You know, um, relevant information. (laughs) No, no, it's not. Um, but then, um, but he does not have a PhD and he uh, has a special, he has an advanced degree. He's very specialized. He works private sector. Um, and we take turns focusing on career so that, neither of us is doing like we're not doing job interviews at the same time kind of thing but at the um um but it has it has allowed yeah right yeah like are you gonna get that job am i gonna get that you know it's like pause (laughs) you do what you need to do this is stable okay you're good let me Mm -hmm. think about something and then what i can say is that having that situation has meant that i have better chips in which to play poker with employers because i don't have a two-body yep. problem and so i mm-hmm. can ask for a much higher salary myself i can demand moving expenses i can um you know in an academic well, setting you have I to make ask. it worthwhile yes exactly yeah. yes um and then when they say well what about your your spouse i have to be like don't you even wear your pretty little head about that like that's not your concern you know because it's usually yeah. men who are like well what about your it's like nope he's not involved in this, this is all me like you know so mm-hmm. Um, we, we've it, had we've had our discussion. We know what our <laughs> yes. thresholds and boundaries and things are. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's also meant that. Um, and, and I guess, and I will say this: like because I don't have this other person, my my career is not dependent upon my partner. I can mm. negotiate for higher value for myself because there isn't this yep. other person to worry about. Yeah, and and and. And he can do the same thing himself and not have to worry about me. I don't, there's no ideal here. There is what works. No. And I'm just encouraging people to think like it might behoove you to think about ideally, does my partner need to have a PhD in the exact same field that I'm in? Or can, can this be someone who's also, who's a good match, Right. <laughs> intellectually and everything but your careers require different things you know they're mm-hmm. quite and and then you can have a, a more um symbiotic development of your careers and you don't and they don't need to follow the same system or the same timeline or the same the same trajectory and that's yeah, that has been exactly. helpful yeah i'm just encouraging people to think broader <laughs> yeah um, yeah. I have a lot of close friends who are LGBTQ, and I often say like that they have figured out a lot of things that the straights have not. <laughs> like they, they mm-hmm. tend to have because, um, you know, as a community, 
they have developed um protocols around relationships and things like this that were kind of away from mainstream culture for um a long time um but they know how to do a lot more negotiation and consent and boundaries and things like this and we should also be talking about these things about like okay what are the boundaries what are what is our future what is you know what are these things that are going to make our relationship work instead of thinking it's just happily ever after exactly yeah and i mean now you look at other kind of you know before people get married sometimes they get told to speak to you know some sort of you know advisor whether it's religious or non-religious whichever Mm -hmm. works for you and often yeah you even in australia you get handed this dvd and you know it's talking about how you communicate conflict and all these other things and you know having that who hands who's who's handing this who is giving you a dvd um i think it's is it just a piece? So clearly, it's a government thing. Okay. Like, okay. I don't know. Uh, but anyone who's a celebrant, or because you have to be licensed to do that right. kind of thing, they hand this up when you, you know, book them in. So yeah, it, it's it's interesting that society goes, okay, you talk about communication, talk about kids, mm-hmm. but it's like, well, we've got to talk about career. We have to talk about you know how we communicate these sorts of things, how yep. you, you know, maneuver these other aspects of life which is part of modern life now and yeah so it's thinking broader as you said about all the different aspects of who you are and what makes Mm -hmm. you you and what you want out of life and being able to you know negotiate all of that for both of you yeah yeah and I think too again like uh, people who I guess follow me on twitter or whatever are gonna be maybe a little surprised to know this but like um i have chosen to to live a fairly traditional life because that's what works for me um maybe my work and career not you know like i don't i don't inhabit a position in, in my career where i look like a traditional woman necessarily but but at home it's um we have a very equal parenting relationship but you know like and we split some of the cooking and, of course, chores, but it's still like this typical traditional, you know, mother, father, child, yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, extended family. And, and, and because that's what I wanted and that's what works for me. And I don't mm-hmm. ever want anyone to tell me how I, what I need to do to live my life or have my career. And I don't want to tell anyone else. And I want to be us. I want us all to be able to live in a world where we get to pick those things and be respectful of each yeah. other. And what I find disheartening is that there is, and while it seems to be coming mainly from the older generation, it's it's there in the younger generations too, this idea that like maybe women shouldn't have these types of careers and things would be better. Maybe our cup, right, maybe we should go back to these older ways of thinking about sexual identity and, um, and even, even gender identity. Um, and things would be better. And and no, <laughs> it's not. Like instead, maybe we need people handing out DVDs where we can all just start. Maybe you need to talk about your expectations of your life and your career. <laughs> you need to start talking to each other. Um, the DVD should be called "This Is Going to Be Uncomfortable," and then we can all just like <laughs> be uncomfortable in this conversation. Um, but uh, but I am. My my concern, you know, for STEAM moving forward is that um, 
we maybe aren't pushing back on these cultural forces that are trying to remove many of us from public life. Mm. Um, and, uh, and like, I don't necessarily want to be in the public face of that, like opposition to them necessarily. Um, but if I have to, I will like, I just, I do not, I do not like this movement, um, at all. And, um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I am concerned that, we we just think that if we just show them the data that they'll just figure it out. But we don't live in a world <laughs> where like people can live on one income anymore. You know, couples cannot live no. on one income. This is not reality. Exactly. Um, and you know, and it takes a village to raise children. So even if someone's mm-hmm. staying home, whichever parent is staying home with the child, you still need childcare. You still need other things. So, um, so I just I think that um. I think we're avoiding some hard, uncomfortable conversations. I don't know. Does the DVD work? Does it make you have these conversations or you just watch it? <laughs> or do you watch I it? I think it varies. Okay. All right. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I've forgotten if I did watch it. Probably yeah. did. <laughs> they might make you watch yeah, it. it, it yeah. yeah. It's the horse water drink thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you give people the information, but it's what they do with it and whether they have the conviction to kind of make the hard decisions about what they want to do and who they are and how they want to live their lives because yeah, they are hard decisions because you've got people from all around you from when you're a kid telling you, giving you advice and a lot of it's well-meaning. A lot of it comes from the heart, but it's not always going to be applicable to you. And it's, you know, understanding that that advice is advice. It doesn't mean that you have to follow it to the letter and it's being able to, you know, find out more about who you are and what you want mm-hmm. that will help you move forward. <laughs> or maybe, so when you encounter those roadblocks, which you're going to encounter, you remember, oh, wait. Yeah. I I remember seeing that if I encounter this roadblock, there are people I could talk to about this. <laughs> Let's go find <laughs> that DVD. You know, like that would be, yeah. wait, I don't even own DVDs anymore. So we're talking about DVDs and I'm like, I don't, I don't, you know what? I do I do have a couple seasons of Kids in the Hall on DVD because <laughs> because I wasn't able to buy it on Amazon Prime until recently. But anyway, the yeah, maybe okay. it's just a link to a Dropbox now. I yeah. Know. <laughs> it's just a, yeah. Go watch this YouTube video. All right. Um any more soft questions? Soft, nope. Soft questions. I think that's it. That's it. Okay, good. Yeah. I was I was wondering if you were going to make me, yeah, make me answer like yeah. would you rather fight 50 you know, duck-sized horses <laughs> or one horse-sized duck. <laughs> to which the answer is always the 50 duck-sized horses. Like, you never want... Like, really? ducks are terrifying. They're terrifying. A horse-sized that, duck... Bad. I mean, yeah. geese are awful. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Upsi- upsize the geese and then you've got problems. <laughs> I mean, swans alone, right? Like, swans are the best yeah, example of why you don't want to make these things any bigger than they are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Yeah. Well, well reasoned. I I follow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, cool. this this has been wonderful. Thanks. Um yeah. thanks for having me. I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm actually I'm not too chilly. I feel pretty good in my winter winter clothes here. Early pre Halloween freeze, I guess. Which is fine. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So just to round off, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go? Oh, well, 
you don't have to find out more about me, but if you decide you want to, you can <laughs> um, find me uh, on Twitter um, until it's purchased, I guess, um, at McCarty <laughs> underscore geo. Um, I, I, I laugh and yet I kind of mean it. Um, you can also, I have, a, <laughs> well, we'll just see what happens to Twitter. Yeah, um, we'll see. you can also find me at J McCarty, M C C A R T Y G O.org. Um, I will keep nice. that personal website even when I join NASA, but, um, it won't be updated too much. Just an occasional blog yep. post here or there. Um, I am on LinkedIn, but you have to know me before I will accept because <laughs> I find that weird. Fair. Yeah, fair. Um, yep. and then, uh, you know, you might find me on a local hiking trail or at some conference talking about fire um, or on another steam powered YouTube channel. But that's where you find nice. me. Nice. And sometimes you find me on a farm on top of a mountain in the middle of a national forest, or rather, you'll never find me there because there's no way you can find that place <laughs> on a map. So, yep. yeah, no cool. way. Yeah. All right. So thank you again. This yes. has been such an amazing conversation. <laughs> and yeah, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening. Thank you. All right. I've loved speaking with Jessica about her work and the incredibly cross-disciplinary nature of the broader field of geography and seeing how it and we are all connected. To learn more about Jessica and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Jessica at Twitter at jmccarty underscore geo and her website, the link for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave us a rating, and share this with your geeky or geekier friends. You can also support Steampowered on Patreon and the Steampowered Show, the link for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>